Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. And there it is. You hit a magic button and then the show begins. And we're live. We're on air. We are cranking. Thank you all for joining me. This is a kind of a special episode. And it's not so often that I have a friend recommend a guest to me for the show. And then, you know, my skeptical eye is always pointed in that direction. Who is this person? Um, but man, was I impressed. And then I had a chance to chat with him beforehand. And so without further ado, he is a marketer, an entrepreneur, and I would say a Jedi master level content strategist. Um, primary focus is on this thing called content intelligence. And this is not something we've really talked about on the show before. We talked about content, but not the idea of which content, why. And, and this particular guest has, has perfected this so much so that he's even outranked the mighty HubSpot, which is basically a recipe for complete badass. He's also a fellow veteran. He was a combat medic. Founder and CEO of Ardent Growth, Skylar Reeves. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me. Man, there's so much. You're doing a lot. You've got so much to your name. It feels like it sometimes, although uh, I still think I live a fairly uh, mundane life uh, compared to most people. So, well, let's find out, shall we? I'm going to pass you this thing. It's kind of heavy, but I know you're a combat <laughs> medic, so you can handle it. Ugh. Okay, here we go. You got that? You got, got it? it. Okay. Thor's got hammer. It. All right. Take Thor's hammer for me. Smash some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. Yeah. So I think more content is not always a good thing. It isn't what you should always be doing. It's a very one-dimensional way of, of approaching content strategy for, uh, for your website or for your organization. And you have to think about instead of how much content you have to be thinking about what what's the quality of content I'm going to be creating, what type of content am I going to be creating? How are we going to distribute it? What's the best way to distribute it for us um, to meet you know to meet our current goals, and in what order does it need to be created to get the fastest results possible? And then ultimately, how it serves the business model. Most importantly, who it's for, what problems is it solving, and for whom. Jeez, man. So it sounds like we're a lot of us are completely thinking about this the wrong way. I've certainly seen it. Hey, the more the merrier. How many blog posts every day? Even mm. sometimes HubSpot's been known to say you should blog frequently on our on our platform. You know, so so it's not the quantity, it's the quality. I think we kind of think this, but then we act in a different way. Like we kind of know it's probably the quality thing, but then we're like, gotta get that weekly blog out there. Yeah, I think if you if you want to be consistent in terms of quantity, use social for that, right? Because it, it keeps top of mind, you're able to consistently pump out content. But when it comes to your website, you want to treat every blog post on your website in, in the same way you would other resources in your company. You're, if you produce content every single day um, or every single week, you're producing too much, your quality is going to degrade. And then ultimately, a lot of that content is not really going to do anything for your business, not in effective capacity anyway. And so you'll find oftentimes when you go to audit um, a large website that's got a lot of content that only about maybe 10% or less is actually driving any business impact. And so then it leads you to ask the question of, 
well, what's that other 90% even existing for? What's it doing for us, right? Imagine you had 90% of your workforce was effectively not contributing to the business. That's not a good model, right? You have to ask it like, why does it exist? What's it doing for us? And if it's not doing anything effective, why are we keeping it? Why Why are we going through the time to spend that? I don't know if you heard yes. about that CEO recently that laid off like 900 employees yes. on Zoom. Yeah. And, and I was reading about, about that. And apparently stats had shown that some of these employees had, had clocked two hours a day and <laughs> it, uh, had actually only worked two hours, but it clocked mm-hmm. eight. Right. And so I don't, some probably good people got thrown out with the bad people, but yeah, inefficiency, you're talking about it right now. What if that was the case? What if you had all this content working for you that you're paying for and really, there was only a post here and there that actually drove anything. So it's like, why create that other stuff? But is it because we don't know what we don't know what that ten percent is? So we're just like throwing crap at the wall. It's like spaghetti at the wall. Yeah, I think that's what I've seen um, across the board with most people. They're they're not really sure what content they need to make, um, in what order, uh, and so they just kind of say, okay, we're just going to experiment, and that's fine, right? It's like lean startup principles, right? Experiment, iterate, and and keep cycling through. And if you do that, okay, but go back periodically, you need to audit what you do have and see what is working, what's not, and use that to actually inform future decisions. That's the, you know, that's the last step of like hypothesis testing um, to actually like learn from what you've uh, just, uh, uh, you know, observed as your results. But, you know, in, it can go, there's, it, it really works against you in two ways. You end up with content that you've wasted resources on to create and there's this other effect that it has that let's say you're trying to rank on Google, you're trying to do this for SEO purposes, that content will also detract from your ability to rank um, as you have a ton of content that's superfluous or just not performing very well. You can imagine just like if you've got a, um, if you're looking at your GPA, you're looking at your score in a, in a course if you're back when you were in college or whatever, having a bunch of zeros is going to drag your overall average down, right? You want to begin to cull that and drop those off, drop those underperforming pages off that aren't doing anything for you in terms of rankings, in terms of conversions, um, in terms of sales enablement, what have you, and, and get rid of them so they don't drag your overall performance of your site down. So again, that's it, a it thing. Really is that is that really a thing? That I, I think that's that's a new thing for me. The idea that the bad pages hurt you. I think yeah. we kind of yep, operate in the world that well, we we go volume because we think. We got to find that diamond in the rough and there's no pain, no foul if we have a bunch of garbage, but you're saying that we actually, it hurts us. It did the detract yeah, from our score. Yeah. If it's, if it's significant enough, I mean, you're talking, if you, if you've got a hundred pages or so, it's, it's not going to be as significant there, but you know, you're looking at two ways. One, Google's not really sure which pages are the most important. And it sees a lot of this stuff on your website that it doesn't want to rank. And if Google doesn't want to rank that page, you know, if Google doesn't want to rank 90% of your pages, then effectively your grade with Google is that only 10% of your content is worth anything, right? So every time you produce a new piece of content, Google has to think, well, is this one going to be one of that 10% that's worth it? Or is it going to be like the other 90, right? And so you introduce a lot of, uh, while it is an algorithm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of trying to make things as easy as possible to not confuse the algorithm. And so we've seen a lot of times where we actually go through and call content out that's underperforming. And the, and the website will actually get a lift in traffic, uh, sometimes 15, 30%. Um, and 30% is a pretty big lift when all you've done is get rid of, of old content. So, wow. you, you know, you, you want to be sur- surgical about it. You don't want to just go through and uh, 
you know, cut out everything that isn't performing well, you, you have to kind of look at a lot of other factors involved. But um, yeah, we've seen we've seen lists from it because it allows the other um, the other pages to flourish, just like uh, culling dead branches off of a tree or a plant, right? It, it allows the other ones to to really shine. So, you know, it's funny, but when you bring that up, it makes total sense, and I can see some smart Googler thinking, okay, God, we got to crawl the inter- the whole internet again. Um, how can we make this more efficient? Well, here's a link farm site that's complete crap. Yep. Uh, how about we algorithmically identify that and then save ourselves the effort in the future and just, you know, rank that low, skip that, head back to the Wall Street Journal or something like that, where consistently is ranking high or Wikipedia, right? Yep. Um, asking for donations again. Uh, <laughs> donate to Wikipedia, people. Sure. So, yes. yeah, it makes sense that you should trim that tree. I never thought about that. I, I never thought about, maybe it's because you, you put in the, it's like you put in that money, you invest in it, it feels like a resource. It feels like you're building a treasure trove, but it's not. It sounds like it's more of a living organism than a treasure trove of gold or something. Yeah, people, I think the the hard part for a lot of people is it, it's, it kind of falls in that sunk cost fallacy, you know, where- Thank you, that's the word. <laughs> Me yeah, and my tree we, tree metaphor, it's sunk yeah, cost. We've, yeah. we've invested these resources, we don't want to get rid of it. And and that's not to say that you couldn't take some of that old content and repurpose it and, and refresh it and make it more useful. But also you want to look back at it too, when you were trying to figure out what you need to create and ask yourself like, well, look, I mean, what decisions were we making back then when we decided to create this content? And is it, you know, is that really still the direction that we're heading? But ultimately the way to kind of, bypass all of that is to actually have a content strategy in place before you begin producing content to begin with. Or if you've got some content in place that like at some point, like get your content strategy together and actually have a well-defined plan on what you're going to create that maps back to the business goals. Like if it's not, if, if you can't, tr- content exists to relieve the constraints on the business, right? So if, if you can't tie those two together, you don't have a strategy. You're just you're just going through the motions, really. So, got it. Well, I, there's a there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot to that. So, so, I, but I'm in. I'm in. Okay, it's not just any content. It's not volume. Maybe even cold the old stuff. If I were to say like, well, how do I do? How do I approach this? What would you say? Like, what is the right way to approach this? So we have a framework that we follow, and there's a a lot of things. In our world, always we end up kind of reverting back to well, like it depends, and it does always depend, but it depends on primarily. Wait, wait, wait. is this an it depends podcast? You know, it's it depends on the <laughs> business model, right? There are different frameworks to follow depending on the business model that you fit into. So, one of the first things we like to um, to assess is to look at how volatile is the vertical that you're in. Okay, so we want to look at things like, you know, how often are people innovating? Um, in your industry, how often is terminology changing? Um, how often, how often are new applications for um, for your product or your service? How often are people coming up with new ways to do it um, or new ways to apply it? Are there entrenched players, um, or is it you know is this is it NFT where it's kind of going all over the place right now, or is it accounting software, right? So depending on what the vertical volatility is, will inform the type of strategy that you're going to take. Um, so things would, that would be, we usually bucket things into three types of, of uh, vertical, um, um, like verticals here. So you got stable, we got mutable, and we got volatile. Stable terminology doesn't change very often. New, new applications don't, uh, don't emerge all that uh, often. 
there are very entrenched players. You know, you think accounting software, you've got QuickBooks Zero, right? Uh, FreshBooks is, you know, uh, coming up on them, right? Yeah. For a stable market, the, the type of strategy you want to take when it comes to what topics you're going to go after is you don't want to really take a lot of bets um, because it's, it's hard to really break into that market to begin with. You need to take a long and steady approach. You need to go after what we'd call the long tail uh, type topics. So these longer questions that people have yeah. um, and work your way up. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. For a mutable market or you know a, um, an easily sort of uh, adaptable, changeable market, terminology will change periodically, but uh, there are often some well-established entrenched players in that space as well. So you can think of that like um, like HubSpot, Salesforce, you know, anything like that. Like, you know, there, there, there are a hundred uh, thousand probably CRMs, right? But, but most people can probably only name like six to 10 off the top of their head. What happens in that type of market is uh, terminology may change, but the entrenched incumbents will jump on them very quickly and they'll rank for them very quickly. So anyone who's trying to, if they're a startup, it's very hard to kind of uh, to go after um, uh, those types of topics with them. Um, any new applications that emerge, new ways to use the software, they quickly get cloned by the competition, right? Um, or they'll get acquired. So Salesforce, Salesforce wants something, they go acquire it, right? Um, the strategy you want to take there is you want to, uh, similar to the stable strategy, about 90% of the content you produce, you want it to be on these sort of stable type topics that are long tail that you're working your way up. And then you want to take a bet about 10% of the time and go after things that may not have search volume at all, but you want to hedge your bets that while they may not have any sort of search volume right now, um, or they're not popular right now that they could be in the future. So HubSpot did this whenever they, you know, uh, doubled down on inbound marketing. HubSpot is, is, you know, um, synonymous with, uh, with inbound marketing now. Right. But I believe it was, Marketo published uh, an article about inbound marketing was one of the first ones to ring for it and talk about it about six months before HubSpot ever wrote anything on it. Right. So that that's what happens. Like you, you can double down on something, um, you know, just because somebody kind of coins a term or you hear a term, you can double down on it and then, and really push behind it and grow over time. Now in volatile markets, terminology changes frequently. New applications are always emerging very frequently. There's a lot of um, technological changes and innovations. Um, they tend to be more, um, uh, rather than incremental, they tend to be more revolutionary. So you can think, um, well, like crypto is probably one of the best examples right now, everything that's going on there. Um, and there, while there are a lot of players, there's, there's few to, to almost none, like actually entrenched players who, if you were to look across um, the market of 24 to 36 months or 48 months, there's few websites that are just dominating uh, the top ranking positions consistently across the board, across that time horizon. So once you know uh, about the, the, like the volatility, the, like I said, that, that informs your strategy with, oh, by the way, and with a volatile market, you basically just take all the bets you want, um, go after stuff that looks easy, go after stuff that looks hard, because since it's so volatile, you never really know what's going to work. And so this is kind of more in line with that, throwing things at the wall to see what sticks, right? But uh, when you do that, you have to understand like 90% of or so, a lot of what you try won't work, but all it takes is for one thing to hit and really succeed. So uh, the first thing to do is look at vertical volatility. Um, after that, and that's, that may sound complicated. It's really simple. Um, yeah. Basically just go look at the rankings, see how often they fluctuate. But um, after that is where things get, I think, a lot more interesting. And you want to look and say, okay, how do we need 
to distribute uh, content across our funnel. Um, you know, where do we need to map it to? And that's where your business model comes into play as well. So rather than looking at your industry as a whole, now you're looking at your actual business and how you make money. So you've got top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom of funnel type content, right? Top of funnel drives awareness, middle funnel helps kind of, you know, generate interest and, and create desire. And then bottom funnel helps convert and or, uh, you know, you've got that sort of secondary um, feedback loop on it, which keeps people happy so that they, so you don't have churn. But this is where most people mess up. <clears throat> they will create a lot of top of funnel content or they won't create any. And it ends up creating this imbalance in the way their content is distributed across their site um, throughout the funnel. And that's just not the way to do it um, for every single business. So the way to th that we think about this is if you've got, uh, let's say you're a freemium based company, um, you're a, uh, let's say you've got a free app, but you monetize through some sort of uh, kind of upsell on the app, or if you're a, uh, if you're a WordPress, WordPress plugin, or if you're a Chrome extension, or if you're uh, Canva or really Asana to some extent, Asana kind of works across the spectrum from, you know, they got a free version and then they have a, um, you know, kind of like a, what I would call like the freelancer solo type version. Sure, yeah. Then they have their more, you know, for businesses and enterprise, right? Yeah. So they have a freemium model to a mid-sized model. And with a freemium model, you want to focus on uh, top of funnel content because you have to drive signups, right? You have to get people to sign up into your product, um, you know, hit that activation point, right? And, and then begin to try to convert them to a paid user, right? So we tell people if you're, you know, if we're looking at a freemium type model, if that's the, uh, the framework in which you're operating, 70% of content, top of funnel, about 10 to 15%. And these are flexible. Uh, they don't, they're not like set in stone. Middle funnel, about 10%. Bottom of funnel, 20%. And if you're, let's say you're a mid-sized SaaS company and you're, um, uh, let's say we're looking at the higher tier model of, of, uh, of Asana or, uh, Trello, Grammarly, right? They got a free Chrome extension, but they can convert you on the business plans. Um, from that type, you want to do probably something more like 50% top of funnel, 25% middle funnel, 25% bottom of funnel. And uh, again, because the whole goal there is just, you want to drive awareness to get people to download the extension or download, to start the free trial, right? And then use right. the other to, to convert them to a paid user. And then more importantly, um, that bottom funnel content can also be used to make sure that you retain them. So you keep educating them on new ways to use the product on more efficient ways to use the product. That way they're, they're happy and you're not, um, you know, introducing more churn. Churn is like the death of everything. Right. So um, there, there are other nuances that go into them when it comes to top of funnel, like you want to make sure you're bringing in the right type of qualified traffic and you're bringing the right people, you know, into your platform, but um, you can be a bit more indiscriminate with top of funnel because you're just trying to get people to know that you exist. And it's through your middle of funnel content where you're showing the use cases that people are able to look at this and say, okay, yes, this solves my problem. This is for me. Right. Um, and then finally you've got enterprise SaaS with enterprise SaaS or, or enterprise really in general, where you're selling any sort of high ticket item, you're looking at a, like a large ARPU of say 10,000 plus per year or something like that. Um, you really want to focus more on uh, your bottom of funnel, middle of funnel, more than anything else. It's your case studies, your white papers, your, I think more like sales enablement, right? Hmm. Won't probably need a ton of top of funnel um, or uh, 
we just do like a 20% top funnel, 40% middle funnel, 40% bottom funnel. And the way to think about it is that because the, the sales cycles are longer, right? So top of funnel, it's hard to tie that back to revenue attribution. So if you create just some top of funnel content that drives up some awareness that people know that you exist, right? And then your middle funnel and bottom of funnel is able to uh, convince people that you're a fantastic platform that, and also make it easier for, um, you know, account executives and things like that to be able to, uh, when you bring up another competitor, they're like, well, check this out. So let's say you're Gong. Gong's, Gong's a prime example of this. Gong has a lot of content, don't get me wrong, but a lot of it is middle funnel, bottom funnel. Hmm. And if, um, you know, if I'm bringing up, what about, what about Chorus AI? And, you know, and they can say, oh, well, here, you know, read this, or, or it also gives the, uh, the AEs, you know, um, information to, to respond to that directly, which is obviously they can do that. They're gong, right? That's what, what their entire platform is built around. They can say, yeah, but we've been around X amount of years longer, which means we have um, X billion, you know, more or whatever um, inputs on in our machine learning model. So, you know, do you want to go with that one or do you go with this one, right? So uh, that type of content helps close the deals. Um, one thing that's worth pointing out though, is that when we're talking about these percentage breakdowns, that it doesn't mean, uh, these don't mean like, like numbers. So we're not saying, so for every 10 pieces of content that you create, that's seven, they're gonna be top of funnel, you know, <laughs> and two be middle funnel, one be bottom funnel, anything like that. What we're saying is that, uh, let's say you're, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the freemium model, what we're saying when we say 70% of top funnel content, what we mean is 70% of your traffic, not your content, 70% of your traffic is driven from that Okay. So we're not saying, because I was going to ask you, is yeah. it the type or the topic, but it's not, it's actually the result. Yeah. Yeah. You can think of it like that. It's um, it's, you know, what's the purpose of it? Like, what's it doing for um, uh, one, like it, like when someone searches for this and our page is ranking for it, what are they trying to accomplish? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then two would be like, wh what's the problem that it's, that it's solving for, you know, is it directly relatable to our business and is our product or service like irreplaceable? for what their problem is. Um, that's how you can kind of think about like the business value and, and, and where it moves up and down the, the scale of top of funnel to bottom of funnel. I wanted to clarify with you, when we talk about the stage that a type of piece of content is, I heard almost a couple of different things. Is it is it the type of content that changes across stages? Is it the topic that changes? And then how do you know what stage it's for? So the easiest, probably easiest way to think about this is, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. So you okay. can actually have one piece of content that maps to multiple stages of the funnel. Um, hmm. You know, and, and there's a lot of people who uh, I think- How do you track that? Well, okay, so you ask yourself a series <laughs> of questions. Um, so like what we like to do is we like to ask ourselves, uh, so like look at the article, right? Or, or look at your outline, or if you're about to create it and ask yourself questions like, does, does this article help increase brand awareness, right? And if it does, it gets a check mark for top of funnel. Yeah. And you could say a lot of times the answer is maybe yes or no. So maybe means it could increase brand awareness, but odds are people are searching for this type of thing. They're already aware that we exist, right? If you're searching for CRMs, you know, you probably already know that Salesforce exists, right? So mm -hmm. ranking for CRM, like well, it may be great for Salesforce. It's not going to directly increase their brand awareness, right? Um, the second question we ask is like, well, does this help create interest or desire? Like if I, if someone were to read this article, would it help create interest or desire for our product? Well, 
depends on what their problem is, right? If someone's looking for um, project management software that where you can have, uh, where you can plan out workload and resource mm. utilization, right? If you're talking about how to plan resource utilization, right? And, and that could, uh, that could be top of funnel because you could talk about, you know, like what is resource utilization, you know, what are best practices, but then you can show how to do it with your product, right? And so if they're searching for that, they're probably looking uh, to solve for that problem. They see your product. And so, yes, it can uh, create interest and desire. And then the third question is, does this help uh, nurture interest and, uh, you know, and really kind of entice them to make a purchase? Well, if they've got a problem and you're able to directly solve for it very well and, and, and show through your content how easy it is to do this, then yes, it can, it can entice, it can entice some people to make a purchase, not all, right? So we might put that in a maybe category. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, does it help retain customers and build, you know, uh, build loyalty? So if it helps them solve a problem, maybe they've already purchased the tool and they're trying to figure out how to balance out the workload across their, across their resources, they go, they read that. And so that kind of, uh, that's your, you know, your feedback loop, uh, loop on that advocacy level of the funnel. But uh, one single piece of content can actually address, can map to all four of those. So that's, that's something to consider too. The other thing is to look at the query itself. So oftentimes, um, you can look at things like any sort of comparison type articles tend to be more middle of funnel, right? Um, any mm -hmm. who's looking for how to do something within a tool that's typically, you know, on that advocacy, you know, loyalty type uh, uh, phase. Right. If they're looking for uh, pricing, right, that's very bottom of funnel. Or if they're looking for, um, you know, how people in my, in, you know, X industry use this, that's very bottom of funnel. They're really looking to, to figure out if it's the right one for them versus if they're searching for something very broad, right? That anyone uh, could answer, like what is resource utilization or, um, you know, how to manage a sales list. That, that's very top of funnel, right? So. Okay. All right. I, I think it gets a little confusing when one piece of content can help everyone, but I, yeah. I guess that, that maybe is not as common. That's not really the thing to focus on. The thing to focus on is, what problem does this solve yeah. and, and where in that buyer's journey does this really, you know, move things along? Does it grease the skids at what point in time? Uh, you know, if you were to start a blog out from scratch, which not a lot of people get a chance to do, but let's say you had a hypothetical and you were starting out from scratch. Are there any things you would do? You know, you would have people do differently. I, we we're, we're looking at volatility. We're thinking about the stage of the content. Is there anything else you would recommend people do yeah so take volume into account from there you know say okay how do we make money right that helps you kind of say this is the type of distribution model we need and then from there now it's time to actually plan topics to map it back into that distribution model right yeah. so uh, of course you're gonna have to take into consideration things like like what's our budget look like you know writers designers you know what type of medium all of that but um, you know, you take those numbers, but then we like to say, okay, um, where do we plan on distributing this content? Uh, what's going to work best for us? You know, are we, if we're self-serve, SEO is, is the way to go there. So if we're going to create this blog, though, we like to start by um, getting um, information from two primary resources. One is our customers, um, and then the second is uh, through keyword research. So you start with customers because they can really help you identify how to lead your keyword research. Um, you'll still add in maybe additional things you didn't discover during customer research, 
to the keyword research phase, but this might be things like, you know, the questions that the customers are asking, the pain points that they have, the objections that they're bringing up, the competitors that they're mentioning, right? Um, if you can't get direct access to the customers themselves, um, or if you maybe if you need to be able to do this more quickly, go talk to account executives, uh, go talk to- Start a podcast, you know, yeah, either way. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Talk right. to AEs, talk to customer service, um, review gong recordings, review chat logs, emails, anything you can get that gives you um, you know, access that if you, if you don't have any of that, go read G2 reviews on your competitors and just see what their problems are and what they complain about and what they like. And that can help you understand what people care about and the types of, you know, if, if when they're complaining about something, um, that there's, there's a question that usually leads to that, right? So you can kind of reverse engineer what, what types of questions or, or uh, topics that people are, are mentioning. So we'll start there, get customer research. We use that to inform our keyword research process. And the keyword research process is more of the data-driven side of things. So you get qualitative data with the customers and quantitative data with, with keyword research. So with keyword research, uh, take the insights of the customers, map it to the topics, um, uh, map it to the to different stages of the funnel, and then go into a tool like Ahrefs or SEMrush, you know, whoever you have doing keyword research for you. Um, have them think and figure out what are all the broad level topics that apply to us. So if you're something like QuickBooks, they're going to be things like anything related to accounting, anything related to expenses, anything related to invoicing, time tracking, taxes, right? Figure out what are all these broad, um, you know, what we call seed topics uh, that, you, that you're applicable to. And then in the keyword research process, get everything possibly mm -hmm. related to them that you can. I see a lot of times when people do keyword research, um, I, someone mentioned in a Slack channel the other day that uh, they felt like they were doing keyword research every single week. And uh, that, that blew my mind. I was like, you should really just do it like once every six months or every year, really. Yeah. Like, do they have want, extra time on their hands? What's going on? I, I, well, I think it was, it was, it was a very, there wasn't a plan, right? They were, they were, re, they were reactive mm -hmm. instead of, instead of proactive. So, so we like to do keyword research from the sense that we're trying to map out what our cam looks like. Um, in terms of like online search, you know, and, and really say, okay, what does that TAM look like? And then from there, you can use, uh, so we, to speed it up, we like, so we built a clustering algorithm that allows us to take that TAM because it can be like a mat, like an overwhelming amount of data. Um, we wrote an algorithm that can cluster it down, make it very uh, much more concise, give you like revenue projections and volume projections. And it's just easier to digest. And then once you have those topics, you can say, okay, overlap your customer research data with that and then begin to map it to the funnel. And this is why I brought up the percentage thing um, in terms of percentage traffic, because you could find two topics that you can potentially rank for that those two topics could drive 70% of, of your traffic. Now, we don't like to do that. You can, have, you can find one topic that does that. We don't like to take that approach because it creates like this single point of failure, right? Um, where what happens if, you know, all of a sudden you bump down from, rank one to rank two for something like that, you've just lost half of the traffic that page was getting because of the way that click-through rates work on Google. Uh, so we like to kind of spread it out a little bit, but ultimately we want 70% of the traffic to come from, uh, say, in, in, that, in that scenario for like freemium model from top of funnel. So you look at those keyword research models that get built and say, how much traffic can this entire topic generate for me? What percentage does that fit into this whole traffic that we're trying to get? and go that way. And the last step is really to say, okay, like how do you determine what the traffic number is going to be to be able to map the percentages to it? And that just comes down to um, depending on where your role is in the organization. Um, 
and like what you, you know, what your responsibility is for setting goals. Um, that comes down to like, you know, what's the, what's the revenue goal? What's the um, LTV to CAC ratio goal? You know, what goal are you responsible for? Is it traffic? Is it conversions? Is it, um, you know, uh, you know, whether it's MQLs or SQLs or whatever, um, is it the, the revenue generated? Is it, or is it LTV to CAC ratio? Is it churn, you know, so on and so forth. Depending on what those are, you can work out um, what traffic numbers you need to be able to hit that revenue goal, to be able to hit that, um, uh, that SQL goal, right? And so once you know what that baseline number is, you can do a little bit of algebra to kind of work back, um, you know, what those percentage numbers need to be and then map topics to that. So that's, that's our approach uh, from there. It's just, you know, create the content. And there's a, there's a lot of nuance that goes into that, but that's a, um, that's a much deeper sort of, uh, you know, build a content team. They got to know how to create content, good content. Yeah. Uh, best advice I can give there is just have, have your writers interview subject matter experts so that they can put their unique, um, you know, product led ideas into the content. Um, and all content should lead back to the product. So. Yeah. All ties back into it. It's amazing how a little bit of research can just go such a long way. A little bit of thought. We're so eager to jump into it and maybe evaluate it after the fact. We tend to avoid that planning thing that comes before it, but it can save us the 90%. It can save us so much time and effort and money. If we just put a little more into it like that. Um, brilliant. And it seems, you know, it may seem hard, but, but it's really not like, as long as you know how your business makes money, and as long as you know some idea of what your LTV and conversion rates are, this is a process that can be done in like two weeks, you know, and so you can have your entire content plan mapped out um, strategically over the course of a couple of weeks. Now, execution takes a lot longer, but the strategy can be done very, very, very quickly. Um, I think, you know, even though it's a little bit more effort, it's far better than just blindly uh, creating content. So, and is it perfect? No, it's not always going to be hundred percent perfect. Right. But it's better than just you know, throwing things into the dark. Right. Makes sense. Totally cool, man. Well, I'd love to shift a little bit and, and sure. get into the, the physical world. Uh, you know, just kind of coming out of COVID we think and events maybe kicking back into gear. Are there any marketing events content or otherwise that, that you're excited to, to check out in the 2020 Two. 2022 it sounds kind of weird to say that in 22 what do you kind of anything got your eye are you are you going back to in person or are you going to stay virtual for a bit so it's, so it's interesting for me because i came into this i came to this world from um like the logistics algorithm world yeah and uh about the time i was coming into this world um the like covid was like just like getting ready to happen too so Never really got to go to like a ton of events to begin with. I went to one earlier this year up in um, up in Philly. It was more of an entrepreneur kind of meetup type thing. But um, yeah, so I don't have any like direct events I'm looking forward to. I'm always like open to recommendations though. Um, I think uh, there for the longest time, uh, it was more of the kind of content related conventions, but I'm, I'm definitely more interested in the anything related to like sales. And mm. uh, I would say like, like scaling anything that's, um, you know, talking about finding product market fit, talking about go-to-market strategies, you know, getting it beyond just the, um, the more kind of granular tactical content uh, creation side of things. Yeah. That bigger picture. Um, I don't, do you know Sangram? What's that? Do you know Sangram from Terminus? No. 
introduce you guys. He just came out with a book on how to go to market, just a go to market framework. Um, he's a he's a marketer. He was the head of marketing at uh, Pardot. That's where I met him. But then uh, he co-founded Terminus, which is like an ABM platform. Uh, but yeah, he he had kind of noticed that a lot of us had just like we gloss over, we avoid the content planning. We we tend to avoid which sounds like it's really connected the idea of the go-to-market planning. We just sort of go for it. It's like, hey, hold on a second. Come up, need a little little order to this chaos before you just wing it and shoot from the hip. I think the, you know, the thus far, the one of the best kind of examples I'd, I'd seen for, for GTM was um, Marco Berge from uh, formerly of HubSpot, where he was kind of talking about um, his formulaic approach to kind of determining like the, you know, the, are you ready to, to go to market? Um, you know, that sort of thing. And um same thing with like like finding product market fit and whatnot. That's that's probably one of the best resources I've found this where I'd love to go to anything where like he's talking or um, pretty much anything that's got, you know, that takes a much more formulaic approach. I don't think you can remove people from the equation, but if we can find uh, leading indicators, um, that's, you know, that's definitely what I'm more interested in versus uh, kind of looking at lagging indicators. Yeah. yeah on that note, anything coming around the corner, anything exciting, any kind of changes happening in the world or in, you know, buyer behaviors that kind of have you hyped for the future or just all the opposite and you just depressed for the future. (laughs) No, I think that's, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, social platforms really sort of change buyer behavior with, uh, you know, with younger generations, um, looking across platforms like TikTok and things like that. And just the sheer reach that, um, you know, people can get across those platforms, um, you know, if, if they, if they get in early and they actually have some good entertainment and they're, and they're, you know, creating the right type of content and messaging for that audience. Um, I think that's what I'm more, most interested in um, right now in terms of like, what's going to go on in the future, because it's, uh, we're, I think, you know, we're going to see shifts in the way that people are actually uh, going through that, uh, uh, that customer journey, right. As opposed to searching um, the way, say, my generation or, or older generations uh, may tend to do more often. Uh, a lot of it tends to happen just starting right there organically on social. And I, I think that's, I think it's fascinating going to be an entirely new set of problems to, to tackle. So. Do you think Facebook reinvents themselves with meta or is it too late and have, have the kids moved on to other platforms and, and it's just me, a bunch of old people plugging into Oculus. I think, I think that the, it's the, well, I think it's too early to tell. I do think though, that there's, they're, they're, they're hedging their bets there. And I'm not sure if it's, if, if they're able to come back and listen, like shifts in, in generational behavior, like people don't like to go back to the things that they used to use until like, there's a much longer um, time period. Right. I mean, um, you know, styles from the eighties or nineties may come back, but it's of 20 years. Right. So <laughs> it may be different with technology though. It may be, you know, but. Do you have an Oculus? I do. I do. And I've, Is I've it cool? used it use it like three times has facebook sucked your soul in when you plug it in no no i uh i think the only thing i ever did on there was uh watch a watch a netflix movie and the netflix app just to see what that was like it was actually really nice um but outside that it's basically set in a box for eight months I think why is that i don't have one but it so it sounds like it's not something you're just using all the time you're playing games on and everything just it's kind of fun maybe it's probably, probably just too busy to really too you know, busy. Uh, to yeah. do to do a lot of that. I'm sure. Uh, Maybe uh, just not fun. I mean, that could just be. It just could be it. You know, it could be the coolest thing ever, and you just no. 
Yeah, you know, you, you see videos <laughs> running to a wall, things like that. No, I think there, there were some, there, there, yeah. there's some fun, fun aspects to it. I think it definitely needs, like, it, it's not at the level of, you know, if you're in the game and you're like that's just not quite, like, uh, the rich experience of a game is, is what I look for, you know, versus just, like, the the graphics of, like, a good story. And I don't think that's the platform's attracted enough people to create those robust of uh, type of games on the platform yet. So, yeah. Um, May not be ready yet, you know. Like, you know, maybe it can handle Minecraft graphics, but it can't get to, you know, real engines and things like that. Right, and and really, from you think about it from a business standpoint too, like, what's the incentive for the businesses to really invest all the resources into that platform when it doesn't have as much market share versus, say, um, you know, Xbox or PS, uh, PlayStation. True. True. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Why would you build for? for facebook yeah yeah those other guys have have the advantage are there do those platforms have their own 3d type no playstation does um okay yeah i believe they do i don't i don't know about about microsoft though Hmm. Hmm. craziness man well my next question is like really who are you who are you how do you know all these things can you take me back in time like little skylar days did you know you're going to be the you know spirit talker of all things content and seo and and business go to market or what was it like no i'm so man i'm still learning stuff as i go to be honest that's what i tell people the um me i grew up in the um the middle of nowhere in kentucky so um you know uh, we wore shoes you know we had we, we wore shoes and we had schools and things like that you know but um books yeah had books learning uh, like, yeah, I liked books. Um, you know what? You know what's interesting too is like when I was in when I was a kid and I was going through school. Um, you know, like a lot of people never really applied themselves. And um, you know, when I was graduating, I got emancipated when I was sixteen, and uh, so that I could enlist into the military because I wasn't I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Wait, wait, you said when you were sixteen? Yeah, I got I got emancipated so I could enlist. I didn't join until after I graduated. I graduated when I was seventeen. What does that so. mean? That means like you you can like leave your parents and you're an adult now. Yeah. So like, you know, in order to, you know, swear in, sign the debt papers, you know, all that sort of stuff with um, up at uh, um, processing, you have to be a legal adult. And so you have to be emancipated um, in, in order to do that. So uh, in Kentucky, or, or wait till you're 18 kind of thing. Yeah. Or wait till you're 18. Yeah. One or the other. Wow, or you want to get after it. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's really just like a formality. Like in order for me to actually sign the paperwork, I had to uh, to legally be, um, you know, an, uh, an emancipated individual, uh, that or they would have had to come up there and like sign it for me and the government won't right. really do that in those instances. So, so I, um, you know, in school I was, uh, I was like terrible at math. Wasn't that great at math. Always thought I wasn't a math person. Um, and, uh, didn't really know what I was good at. Uh, so when I joined the military was, a like you mentioned, I was a, I was a, a combat medic, uh, uh, a corpsman. I was a corpsman, right? So, right. Navy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Navy yeah. with, uh, with, uh, second and first Marine divisions. Um, so they don't, you know, they don't have medical personnel. So we, um, we provide all their medical support, uh, did a few deployments. And, um, after all of that though, I guess like how I got into this world was it probably started with me. Uh, I read, I read, I read a book by Carol Dweck about, uh, kind of the whole idea of like growth mindsets and, okay it dawned on me that uh, all this time that I've been saying that I wasn't a math person, it wasn't that you're inherently not a math person or, um, or are, it's really just that I was lazy. I never put in the effort. And, um, you know, I thought about the fact that 
you know, if I, I, I've been speaking English at that time, you know, for 20 something years. And I'm like, you know, imagine if I'd been doing math and practicing math every day for 20 something years, I'd probably been pretty good at math by then. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, let me try this. And so I, uh, I was, I remember uh, on our third deployment, we'd have anything going on. It was, you know, nothing was happening anymore. And uh, there was a lot of downtime and uh, we had internet connections at this point. It was a different world from 06 and over in Iraq. And so I, uh, there was a website called Khan Academy, got on Khan Academy and self-taught myself. Oh, Khan know. Academy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, my level of math when I started was like pre-algebra. Well, during that deployment, I self-taught myself from pre-algebra all the way up through calculus and uh, was like, okay, like I get this now. And math made a lot more sense once I learned calculus. It all of a sudden everything clicked and I was like, oh, now I understand what math is for. And, okay. Uh, hold on a second. So you, while you're deployed, you were working yeah. yourself through the Khan Academy? Yeah. Where, where were you at? What, what Where were you stationed when you were deployed? So the third one, we were in um, uh, the air base called Al-Assad. Um, okay. Yeah, it was like, it was, uh, this was 2010 or so. So nothing was really happening anymore. Um, you know, there was a, there was that kind of like that lull period, I think, between like 08 and uh, like 2015, 2016 before yeah. things started pulling out and got crazy again. But uh, so we really didn't have anything to do. Basically, all we did was work out, eat, and, and uh other people play video games and I, you know, was yeah. trying to learn math. And uh, from there. You get like, a ship okay. for that or, or was that okay in the Navy? No, I was a, I was a corpsman, you know, they expected the, the corpsman to, to nerd out all the time. Anyway, yeah. Oh, because you, you were embedded. You're embedded with the Marines. With the Marines? Like, yeah. What's that? Okay. You were embedded with the Marines. Yeah. 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 hundred oh, yeah, percent. Even yeah. worse. So it wasn't yeah. like you were just around a bunch of other Navy folks. You were like with the Marines and like, Oh God, doc is studying again. What are you studying? Yeah, nah. stuff to keep you alive, man. Don't worry about it. You know, like no, it was um they uh I had, I had a really good rapport with them. They that's cool. Um yeah, it was uh that was probably the closest uh like real sense of of brotherhood and family, you know, that I've ever had. So hundred percent, man. And, yeah, and you know, it's it's, it's irreplaceable, yeah. right? So totally, totally. Uh, I, people don't like so this is what we share, right? So I, I, I deploy the same thing and 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 our Navy corpsmen were just like, you know, they they were the they were the good ones. <laughs> They're the ones where you got this pounding headache from shooting mortars all day. And you're like, doc, I, my head's going to blow up. And you're like, here's some ibuprofen, yeah, some water, change your socks. Yeah, right. Water. Yeah. I was a and bit then, of both. You know, I was, um, I was, that was a hard, you know, a hard ass at times. And, but, uh, but also stuck up for people. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't like whenever, People didn't seem to do things. I think that would be just detrimental and you know ridiculous. And the Marine Corps is full of all of that, right? And um, but at the same time, you know, you've always got those handful of Marines. You know, it's like you're always complaining about something. They're like, you know, my knees hurt. And I'm like, well, all of our knees hurt, man. Like <laughs> we we're all hurting. Like you know, we like let's keep going. Don't worry. You know, we'll 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 figure it out later. But, you were you were with an infantry group? Yeah, yeah, I was with infantry. Yeah, so okay. we are. You know, our primary mode of transportation was by foot. So by foot. Yeah. Yeah everything hurts yeah yeah it never it never it never stops so the um it, it completely ruined like camping and all sorts of other things that people enjoy you know in their free time like i'm like yeah i camped for you know we'd be on the woods for three weeks out of the month you know just like in training and it's like yeah it kills all those hobbies for you so it's true except for the thing for me is we we never had a chance to like even on training i mean we never lit a fire right which is like the best part of camping and never did it. And, and so the only thing that changes it for me is if we do ever go camping civilian style, you light a fire. You're like, this is completely different. Cause I remember just freezing 
every body limb off in like Fort Hood in New York and, you know, dead of winter and no fire, you know, you're just sitting in a Humvee freezing to death and yeah, which is great training for the desert, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean about just being outside and sleeping bags and all that. I don't think we ever lit a fire. We had a fire one time. I remember there being a fire once. Um, it's not like we made it, you know, like camping style fire. It was in a barrel. And that was after, <laughs> uh, uh, I think we had just like, now this is North Carolina, so it wasn't that cold, but North Carolina can, can get pretty cold. And we had, um, we had to break the ice in this river in this creek before we like went through it. And we had to like swim in it and do this like obstacle course thing through it. So we were freezing when we got out. And then somebody did have a barrel of fire there. And I remember thinking, this is great. That was this uh, that pretty was special. The, that, was one of the, that was one of the fonder <laughs> memories, you know, of, uh, of, of, of uh, the time and the, and the core, but uh, you talk about the desert, you know, it's funny. We were, we were doing mountain training out in um, um, out West. Uh, and I remember thinking like, okay, like we're training, like go to Afghanistan. So we were, you know, getting ready for all that. And then we went to Iraq. And right. Like, well, that was all worthless, you know, but <laughs> Yeah, the, the difference between the training and the real life was always kind of funny for me. I remember, you know, IED training where they're having us walk up to the car in a certain formation. You actually deploy, you're not walking up to anything. You're like, that looks suspicious. Let's call it in. You know, you we never did any of that. Completely different. Yeah, no, that they, I don't think they didn't give they didn't give us that training. I mean, they was a it was it was most of you know. I'll, I'll say this though about the training it, it definitely does help when it comes to muscle memory right whenever things do get chaotic i think it's like that with you know whether it's in war or whether that's in um in your day-to-day -day job right you learn the basic fundamentals and that way when things happen you understand how to apply you know what you learn um that's the difference between tactics and strategy though right so like mm -hmm. tactics are what to do in the moment right the strategy is the overall plan of you know of how to execute and get there but that way when something happens you're able to respond but but uh, long story short, though, when did the military thing, went and learned math, realized I wasn't a bad, um, wasn't bad at math. I was just lazy. Learned math, went to college, double majored in philosophy and computer science. Um, uh, went from there into uh, transportation, was working on algorithm problems. And then someone was talking about uh, um, this black box called, you know, Google's algorithm. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. Got into that. And then from there, really. I uh, found this nice synthesis between my love for philosophy and writing and articulating ideas and understanding people and thoughts with my love for solving problems with, you know, whether it's algorithmically with computer science or just, you know, um, I'm just applying math or logic to it, taking both of those and blending them together and, you know, marketing and content marketing, especially they, just, they fit perfectly together. So. They really do, man. That that the tech side and the human side. I find it interesting sometimes when you have those thoughts about yourself that you suck at a particular thing. Um, you know, folks like Tony Robbins would call it like a limiting belief. Yep. But I, I've I found that in all sometimes other people say them to you or you just say them to yourself. But usually it's the opposite. You know, it's this weird thing where oftentimes, like I don't know, are you are you a, consider yourself like pretty good at math at this point? I think there's always room for, for growth. I think the, the more things that I learn, the more things I'm like figuring out that I don't know, you know, that's um, uh, I'm definitely better than what I was. Right. But um, math is also like, uh, like any skill, you know, if you don't uh, continuously apply it, you can't, it can't begin to degrade over time. It's not like, it's not like riding a bike, you know, it'd, it'd be like learning a little bit of French or Spanish and then not speaking it for a couple of years, right. You have to kind of stay on top of it and keep, and keep that muscle flexed. Um, but no, yeah. I'm definitely better than what I was, but, um, 
but there's still, I mean, there's so much more uh, to learn and totally. whether it's math or, you know, marketing or anything else. So, you know, it's funny, we're kind of similar in that, um, you know, when I deployed, I spent all my time learning Arabic. Oh yeah. For fun. Like, and you knowing the Marines, you know, like a few people get sent to a school, but no mm-hmm. one's learning anything right. on their free time. So I was yeah. a little bit of an anomaly, but yeah, I, I would, I would copy down graffiti that I'd see out at, you know, in oh, town. You were working on, on writing it too then? And I, oh yeah. Yeah. I could write like a third grader. I got yeah. pretty good. Um, <laughs> but I would copy it down and I take it back and I'd work with uh, the interpreters uh, to do that. Um, and even, I think I ordered some books, uh, popular American books that were, you know, in Arabic to try to parcel through that. So I, I, I get it. I, I couldn't imagine trying to wanting to learn math in that kind of thing, but I had my own thing where I wanted to understand and be able to talk to people that I was interacting with and put them at ease, you know, not just be like, I'm searching you for weapons being like, how's it going? What's up? Any bad guys? Mind if I search you real quick, you know, just kind of that human side. You, you brought up like, like this, uh, like uh, memory that I had. That, yeah. Um, there's two points here. One is that um, it's not necessarily that I like was like wanted to learn math. It was that I wanted to prove to myself that I could do something that I didn't think that I could do. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's really what it kind of came down to. And that it's, it's been a progressive uh, track that I've been on ever since every time oh. like here last year, I was telling myself, you know, we're a consultancy. We're not an agency. I don't want to scale to a lot of people because I'm not good at managing people. And then I realized like, I got to stop saying that to myself. Like, it's like, have I ever really like tried, you know, like I haven't, you know, and so again, that shifts in there, but you're the, the, the note about um, Arabic. What's funny is that I remember, uh, I remember purchasing Rosetta Stone at one point in time was like going through Arabic a little bit on it or Farsi. I think it was Farsi and, um, and thinking to myself, this is completely, like at odds with what you're trying to learn, because like in Rosetta Stone, it was like, you know, learn how to say grandfather, grandmother, or whatever in Farsi. And you look at the picture, it's, you, it's like two white middle American, um, you know, utterly couple. And I'm like, this does not fit. And um, that's actually what spurred me uh, to more towards the computer science route. Because I remember thinking to myself, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could figure out a way to drop you immersively VR style, right? Into a country where, that's how you learn the language so like gamify learning language um in a in a more immersive environment where you're learning the culture you're learning the architecture you're learning you know how to uh how to ask for things right like basically to survive you know it's like you know figuring out how to uh you know get a meal get a place to stay things like that and uh that's what that's what then i was like well how do i figure out how to make this thing i was like well i guess i'm gonna have to learn computer science um and then somewhere along the way i got drawn into the world of algorithms and, and kind of left that in the, in <laughs> down the, the rabbit so, hole. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely the way to learn it is just to drop yourself in there and, yeah. and, and have some, have some why to learn it. I think that's the problem. I, I, I created a, I used to have a company that, or I was part of a company that competed with Rosetta stone. And I would always, I created, I named this thing, the Rosetta stone effect where people would buy Rosetta stone, use it like three times and then never use it again. But if people ask for, software to help learn a language I'm like oh go use rosetta stone it's great and it's like is it is it the software's fault is it your fault who's they'd always blame themselves for not applying themselves but you wonder is that you know how much 
does the software bear in that responsibility if you just used it like a second or two and then and then quit but yet it's really expensive you know um so but that is the way to learn is just to drop yourself in there and survive and i think it's a bit of both with what you're mentioning it's it's one you have yeah. to have a you have to have a reason to start but then i think it's it's important at the meeting in which you're learning it whether that's software or imagine a course that you're in in the past right there's a lot of different ways to learn something right but it really helps if the format and the and the professor are are really great at teaching it right and make it engaging and 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 uh and, and sticky right to make it more yeah. memorable and that's where i think that's the software's job is to figure out a way to actually um to provide you this information in a in a, in a more engaging and uh with almost like a dopamine type effect you know like where you're it's going to get you to come back for more versus just you know the rosetta stone style completionist type course like i don't think those things work nearly as much but yeah so having the why and then this, and then what are the mechanisms mechanism is there to support that uh, that feedback loop of keeping you coming back and rewarding you yeah you know, it's like one day maybe they'll combine the the cool aspect of life and adventure and travel and all that with the i need to learn the, these core basic words which may be boring but couldn't we make we're so good at you know, hacking endorphins everywhere else. Why not there at one point? Uh, but I did, I did want to, I, I love that you had that, that moment where you're sharing with us that it wasn't so much that you're like, yay, math. It was, God, this seems, this seems very challenging. And I feel like I've told myself I can't do it. So you kind of want to hold your middle finger to yourself in the world and say, you know, what? I'm going to, I'm going to prove that I can learn this, you know, like it's climbing a mountain or like it's, you know, joining the Navy and being a combat medic. This sounds impossible. This sounds really tough. Cool. Let me see if I can do it. Yeah. Have you always yeah. been like that? I don't know. I think I've always liked to, uh, I think, I think a lot of people are driven by wanting to prove themselves, whether, you know, um, it's to other people or to themselves. Um, it's hard for me, I guess, to really say whether or not I've always been like that because I, I like I am myself, right? Like, and this is like the philosophical side, like I've always existed with my own, like, you know, my own self. And uh, it's hard to like really reflect back on um, what it would be like to be any different. So, mm -hmm. but I definitely know, like, it, the thing is, though, is like when I look at people like, say, like the people who went through SEAL training and I'm like, those people can work their way through anything, you know what I mean? And like, and so like in, in a, on a relative spectrum, truly, uh, that, yeah. that seems much more, you know, um, uh, dedicated and wanting to, um, you know, prove and persevere and, and work through things versus what I've done. But again, I think it's all just kind of a, kind of a spectrum of who you are and your own experiences and what you're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, it's all relative. And, and it's also the, the personal challenge that has that intriguing thing to you, you know, for me, it's mountains or some other things. And for some people it might be learning a particular concept. Um, you know, it's interesting. I just realized this today and it's kind of on the personal side. I just got certified to try to be a ski patroller recently yeah, um, yeah. and went through a bunch of that medical training, which I know you just are like light years beyond that with your combat training, but it, it felt similar, but I got yeah. to a certain point where my brain decided to say, like, no, I mean, you know, those thick books and medical books, right. It, where it's like, EM, it's like first responder kind of thing. And it gets to a certain point, And then my brain is like, God, you have so many 
bones in the body and you have so much terminology and they keep throwing this crappy. My brain was like, I'm not learning anything else. Sorry, I'm done. Yeah. I was like, okay, I had to have a negotiation with my brain to say, come on, we can do this. And, um, but you know, something about passing that just for me personally, just felt really rewarding that there was like something that it was almost in proportion to how impossible it seemed it was, was the the feeling I got out of it by, by doing it. And yeah, accomplishing easy things is, is not very rewarding. There was a, um, I will never forget. I remember being in the half push-up position at, uh, down at Camp Johnson and, uh, <laughs> the, um, the staff sergeant had said, you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's always stuck with me. And, uh, I think there's a certain amount of uh, pleasure you get over time of just like, like work, right. Like hard work. And like when you do accomplish something that is difficult, because like otherwise, like there's nothing really to be proud of, right? Like it, it just becomes a commodity, right? So yeah. um, no, definitely I've, there. And that to be that being said, that's not to say I, I was always said like fascinated by like Renaissance uh, uh, people, you know, and I'm like, you know, people who were you know, yet Descartes, he was a philosopher, he's a mathematician, you know, did, like did everything, um, you know, or Da Vinci or anybody like that. And, and I always wondered like what happened. You know, um, and there's still plenty of people like that. It's just, you know, you don't hear about them as much. But when it came to like knowledge information, I've always just been able to um, consume information. But I think you reach a point where you have to make a decision about what's worth your focus. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that I would love to learn and love to go work on. But I have to say, like, give it based on my goals right now, like time isn't my most precious resource. It's how I choose to spend that time and, fo- and what I choose to focus on that's more important. And so, yeah, no, I get, I get that completely where sometimes you look at something and you just think, ah, do I need to tackle that? Or if you're in the business world, it's like, should I delegate that? Should I just hire someone? Um, that's something I struggled with after starting the consultancy was, um, you know, I spent time like, you know, writing designing been designing things for 20 something years and um, started writing codes or designing websites or you know uh, you know learning seo right now really I'm creating software been developing software now and it's like we were trying to go into like a, a ppc and things like that and i'm like you know mm. i've reached a point where it's just easier and probably more efficient to just hire someone who this is what they do they already know this right like learn enough so that you can evaluate what good work and bad work looks like but else, but other than that certain things you just need to, you know, look, look to other people or, or ask yourself, is that worth my time to go pursue? So that's really the balancing act, right? Because yes, yeah, you can do you it yourself. Learn everything. Yeah. yeah but you, yeah. that's not scalable and that's yeah, not, no, that's not where growth comes from and growth comes from, you know, delegating and elevating people yeah. around you and, and, and finding the people that are, are like super passionate about that topic yep. and, and staying in your passion zone, I think is what, what I, enjoy the most, but yeah, it's, it's always that question of, should this be something I need to, to take on? Also, I found that uh, just as much as we decide what we want to learn is, is being a little more attentive about what's okay to forget. You know, yes. you can forget this, but you do need to remember this, you know, and being a little more selective about that. Yep. So hypothetical question for you. I may or may not have a time machine here in New Hampshire. It's in the backyard behind under a tarp, you know? So let's say you come visit, get some beers, get some lobster. Um, and 
you get to go use this time machine and it takes you back in time. It's particular though. It's a particular time machine. It takes you back in time and we'll put the time right about, let's say you've graduated boot camp, and you're about to just go off into the fleet and start doing those adventures. If you can talk to that version of yourself, um, that age, and you can talk to yourself, it's not like it, it's going to mess up the time space continuum. Yeah. Not, yeah. You know, no all period, these no things are, yeah, your sister and brother, they won't disappear in a photo, right? It's all, it's all good. What kind of things would you tell yourself? Other than buy Apple, you know, and don't right. short Tesla. Man, that's, um, I think I would have, there's a lot of existential things that could have, you know, that, that would go into it. I think, um, yeah. you know, really learning, um, who I am because it's, uh, um, and then, you know, simpler things about like, Hey, don't, don't make these mistakes or at least think about these mistakes beforehand, you know, but I think it's, 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 man, it's really hard to say, um, It's, it's, it's always been a very difficult question for me to think about. And I've thought about plenty because of like philosophy, because I've always looked at where I'm at now and to think about some other possible world where things have been different is um, like everything that culminated to this point, right? Like had to lead here. Right. And so um, because of the way I've always looked at like adversity or failure or, you know, anything that that's a, you know, if when you don't succeed or you're not good at something at first, I've always kind of looked at it as, um, well, I can't say always. I probably, if I go back to myself then, I probably said, uh, like, go read this book by Carol Dweck, like right now. So you can like completely alter your mind, your, your mindset. But, um, you know, that book reading, started it all for you. Almost yeah, like that was yeah. like a little spark for you. That Yeah. It, like it fundamentally changed who I was as a person. Like, like what's it called days. again? It was growth mindset. The name of the book. It's, it's, it's not word for word growth mindset. I think it's, um, if you search for like Carol Dweck growth mindset, you'll find it. Uh, it's, it's a bit longer. A title it was an academic book that she published. Um, but yeah, it was who I was prior to like reading that book. Like, and I'm not one to think that, Oh, you can just read a book and it just flip a switch in you, but it really did. And it fundamentally put me on a different path in life and changed um, really who I was um, as a person, the way I thought about problems, the way I approached failure, the way I approached, um, you know, solving things. Because prior to that, I would have shied away from trying to do something difficult because I didn't want to fail. And after that, I looked at failure as this necessary component to getting better. And so, you know, when you ask like, like, what would you go back in the past and do? And it's really hard for me to say because everything that's gone wrong or everything that could have been better, um, that's part of this process to actually, you know, improve faster. But on a more lighthearted note, it have been like, hey, read that book, change earlier. Um, maybe, maybe don't get married the first time, you know, so, you know civil, <laughs> right? you know, civil stuff like that. So, um, but to your but, yeah. point, you know, those fail that, that is, you know, the question, by the way, I, I love the fact that I'm, I'm asking a, you know, a study, a studier, a student of the, the philosophy arts, you know, this, this kind of a question, because you're, you're right. It, it, yes, your, your sisters and your family won't disappear per se, if, because they already exist, but what kind of things do change? Um, if you change them earlier and do you miss out? I mean, do you forego the pain like we we're talking about? Right. 
but does that, do you miss out on something? Have you not grown from it? Almost like we learn more from the failures than we do the successes where we're not sure why it's working, but it just is. Oh, 100%. Uh, I think, um, you know, we, when we fail, that's when we reflect on like what happened, right? Because it's very visible. When we succeed, it's very, very difficult to, um, uh, when you're, you know, when you're riding high and when you're constantly good at something, um, you know, to, to really reflect on why you're doing so well at it. Um, it's very easy to get into this mindset that you're just naturally gifted. Um, yeah. and, and that's, and, and, you know, that's so rare most time. It's, a uh, it's funny too. Cause it's like, so I've been, I've been creating art for like literally since I was, um, like four years old. And I, I met two years ago, the guy who like first put a pencil in my hand at a com- completely random event. He's like, Hey, I put a pencil in your hand the first time. And I thought he was lying. And then well, they told me it was true. And I was like, this is surreal, but the, wow. um, who was that? Was it like a famous artist or no, no, it was just some guy in Kentucky. And I, I really didn't even know who it was, but I guess he like taught me how to like do some basic shapes or something when I was four years old. I didn't remember him and, uh, and I'd been drawing ever since and, um, and, you know, got into painting and so on and so forth. But, uh, long story short though, whenever, um, um, I was always into realism, I do like hyperrealism people, things like that. And, uh, people would see some of the work I'd done and they would say, um, Oh, you like, you're really talented. And I'm like, it's not really talent. Like when you do something for 20 years, like you, if you're not good at it, like you've, you've, you've messed up somewhere along the way. Right. And I think whenever people do look mm. at something um, that seems easy um, to the person who's doing it, they look at it as uh, this, Oh, they just must be, you know, naturally gifted or born that way. And that's so far from the truth. And it really undermines all the work and effort um, you know, that you put into it, whether it's music, whether it's art, whether it's sales, whether it's running a corporation, whatever, it undermines all the effort and mistakes that you had to make along the way. And, uh, and really kind of shows you a lot of people would rather just kind of, uh, rather than look at it and say, if I put in enough work, if I, you know, uh, put in the time and the hours and the effort to learn this, that I can get there too. They look at it and say, they just must be born that way. And that's why I'm not going to try because what are the odds I can do it? You know? And I think that's, uh, yeah, gotta, gotta reorient that whole thing. So, yeah. They weren't born that way, maybe, but maybe they had some sort of mindset from nature and nurture that allowed them to be more accepting of failure sooner. Yeah. Yeah. And iterated faster. They did uh, in that, in that Carol Dweck study, they did a, an experiment on children where they were, um, they'd be given these tasks to do. And some of the kids who did well, like whenever they finished their first task or puzzle, whatever, they would tell them, um, oh, you're so smart, uh, you know, like heap them with praise. And then the other group, they would tell them things like, wow, you must have worked really hard. Like you, like you did, you did really well. You put in a lot of hard work here. And as they progressively got the, the puzzles got more and more difficult, the kids who were told that they were smart or, you know, things like that, like they would begin to give up earlier or they would refuse to do the more difficult puzzles. Whereas the kids who were, you know, kind of uh, praised for their, their work ethic or the, you know, whether they, no matter how long it took them, you know, like you must've put in a lot of effort. They were doubling down. They would like try harder and harder and harder. And um, that's, that's definitely something I think that like, if we, you know, if we could go back and fix that, you know, whenever we're raising kids, we could, we could change, uh, you know, the future really of right. what we're able to accomplish as a, as a species. So it's funny how, it, by the way, I'd heard of that study, but I didn't mm-hmm. remember who it was. And I, I was, I would Google it for you. The book is called mindset. Um, Mindset, yeah. on amazon um 
So interesting with the kids and I, and I'd always tried to do that with my kids of saying like, you worked hard. And I guess as you're retelling that story for me, it, it felt like the, and I've seen this too, the kids were, who were working hard, working hard, and then their, their people encourage them because they're working hard. It's almost like the reward was the journey, right? So just like with climbing a mountain, it's not really the top. You're there for a few minutes and you're tired as hell anyways. But, but if you can turn the process of training into it or the process of a triathlon is not the race itself, it's the freaking endless hours of swimming and running and biking. But if you can make that the reward, then there's almost nothing you can't conquer. So for those kids transforming their minds into the fact that you're challenged and working hard on this problem, that's the important part gives them the strength to take on any challenge because that's the point of it. Because it really helps you form an identity. I think around yourself of um, I am a person who does this, right. Who who works hard, who puts in effort. I, you know, I'm a person who um, gets up at, 5 a.m. and exercises, or I'm a person who, you know, is always uh, checking on my family members to make sure they are, they have everything they need, or my customers to make sure they have everything, you know, it's, it's, it really helps kind of form this identity. And then, and then it's hard to let go too of it because, you know, it, it does instill in you like who, who you are as a person. And once that's instilled, you, you don't like backslide. Whereas, you know, vice versa, let's say you succeeded at something. You did, you succeeded first two, three, four times. I think, you know, we've seen this like salespeople, right? And they come in, they, they crush it like right out the gate, right? And then the moment things kind of get a little bit difficult for them, it's, they just start slipping really fast because they have this false sense of, I'm just must be great at this, right? And, and, uh, and really it was just a bit of probably naivete and, and luck the, that came into it from the beginning. And, and so they weren't, uh, they weren't humbled right out the gate. So no, 100%. It's definitely, definitely about the journey. So. Yeah. I had a, um, back in the day I had this like sales job and I, I would remember I would be at an event and our manager would come, come up to us and you'd see people get hit for the momentum of rejection. If they had too many in a row, um, and not enough of the success, they, you just saw them sink deeper and deeper. And, and the manager would actually, he was really cool. Uh, shout out to Bill. He would go and he would buy them a drink at the bar at the, uh, at the event and bring it back and be like, you know, here you go. Just relax a second. Just, you know, it's almost like the football players or sports people yeah. forgetting about the last play. Just you're, you're going to be fine. You'll be because the same thing would happen. If you got a couple in a row that were a success, a sale, you're on fire. And then you just yeah. carried that confidence over, you know, to all the next ones. And it sort of became this self-fulfilling prophecy because yeah. you would keep, you would keep being successful with that mindset. Yeah. It's a, um, there definitely is like a feedback loop there. And yeah, and the same thing goes, you know, when someone first starts out with something, it's like whenever we start to work with someone new working on things that we're working on. And if they, you know, if they just don't nail it right off the bat, like we're called, we're called ardent growth for a reason. We're passionate about growth. Like and that. you know, the, I would tell people, I'm like, you've never done this before. Like, is it reasonable for you to expect that you would just be phenomenal at this? Of course not. Like, but I promise you, right? Like you, you put in the effort, you do this every day for, you know, for, for 30, 60 days, like you're going to see noticeable improvement and you're going to get actually most, the bulk of your improvement in the beginning. Um, the longer you do something, you're, you're not fighting for these massive improvements anymore. It becomes more like, uh, you know, look at, look at Olympians, right? Like the highest tier Olympians, um, runners, let's say, you know, they put on this effort and all this work. It's not to, 
shave, you know, 30 seconds off their, you know, <laughs> off their, not, you know, it's, it's incremental measured in intense of a second um, improvement changes. And that's the difference between gold and silver. And so, yeah, when you're first on something like just, I think it's always helpful to remind people like, uh, I literally just asked them like, isn't it, re is it reasonable to expect that you're just going to be amazing at this and when you've never done it before? And like when someone's able to kind of, um, you know, kind of pull themselves out of the situation, think about it more, um, you know, uh, uh, almost like in the way, you, you know, you kind of do when you're trying to be meditative or whatever, you know, be um, removed from the situation. They look and say, oh, of course, it's absurd to think that I would just be amazing at something I've never done before. Like that's, that's, you know, that's not logical at all. So and it really helps kind of um, help them like go back to the situation and start tackling it again. So I can see why people would work with you. I mean, the, the transparency and the authority to say something like that to someone where normally we're surrounded by, you know, yes vendors. Oh, you, it'll be fine. No, oh, we'll get success right away. And all these things. It's like, no, Hey, it is a process, but trust me, I promise yeah. you, you will get there. I can see why people uh, sign up in droves and, and you have the challenges of growth and managing people and learning a new challenge. So um, where can people connect with you? Where do, if they want to reach out professionally, you know, the LinkedIn's, the socials, also websites, all those kind of things. Yeah, best place is probably LinkedIn. That's probably where I'm most active. You search for Scott Reeves on there. You'll find me on there. Um, websites, ardentgrowth.com. Uh, um, that's, you know, that's really the bulk of it. I, I've, uh, I'm on Twitter now and then, but very rarely. Uh, I forget that Instagram exists. So uh, <laughs> LinkedIn, LinkedIn and my website would, would probably be the, the two best places. Or if you're in any private Slack channels, if you're in, if you're in marketing, um, if you're more on the uh, probably one of the best communities out there is traffic think tank that's a great community of marketers um uh, super path that's run by jimmy daly that's a really great community of uh, more content on the content side of things um nice. those would be the two that i would recommend the most nice absolutely um and what kind of what kind of groups do you work with what what is you know because i know there's a lot of people out there listening that have learned from you but if some of them want to just even like we were talking about just hire you <laughs> like clearly yeah. you've got it can i just you know, yeah. what's the best, you know, group for you? So we, um, you know, we were trying to figure out product market fit for a long time because we started developing software and it's like, Hey, who's this the best for? And it, it really does work for just about it. Like it's worked for everyone, but there's a question of who do we really understand? Like, and right. really, you know, like right. the, the customers that we understand the most are probably, it's going to be B2B SaaS. Um, that's who we like working with. We get the models, we get the customers because we're customers ourselves. Right. So like, it's very easy for us to empathize and understand what it's like to use HubSpot for the first time or, you know, or to use, um, you know, uh, uh, Salesforce or anything like that, right? Like it can be frustrating, right? So um, we're avid users of different types of software. So B2B SaaS, um, uh, and we really like uh, B2B SaaS that has a uh, either self-service or, or, or sales assisted uh, as opposed to sales heavy. We've worked with some sales heavy, but we prefer, um, uh, you know, self-serve or, or sales assisted B2B sales. That makes sense. That makes sense. Quicker, quicker time to value probably for you, your team. Um, good stuff, man. Dude, Skyler, thank you so much for being on here. Uh, I don't know if you looked at the clock. Time is literally warped no by. Yeah. It is has literally warped by. But I get the sense that uh, if we if we didn't have calendars dictating our lives, we yeah. might even just continue to philosophize for hours after this may even have a full Rogan size episode at one point. So we'll just yeah, have to have we, you come back on here and we'll just make it a philosophy episode. Yeah, we, I can, I can talk philosophy all day. We can, uh, we'll have to catch some time and, uh, share some, uh, uh, 
uh, share some uh, war stories or, you know, uh, from around our time since uh, I know we were both um, on that side of things with the yeah. course. Yeah. Maybe you can help me figure out calculus, which I've failed numerous times uh, <laughs> in the past. <laughs> Everything I, I used to, you know, uh, I'm not going to go on a tangent here, but I always thought of algebra was absurd until I learned calculus. And then all of a sudden I realized why I had to learn algebra was so I could do calculus and then yeah. everything everything made sense. I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense. I was like, think about all the problems I can solve now, like, you know, questions that I have that we can actually work out and come up with answers to. So. Well, good uh, to know. Next time I have trouble with my kids math homework, I know who I can yeah. reach out to. As perfect. Khan Academy. I think it still exists. It's a great, oh, I'm it's sure. Great yeah. Resource. Khan Academy is a, is a classic for those listening. Who, yeah. Great place for starting just about anything, anything, yeah. especially the core concepts, core classes. Um, dude, this is again, thank you very much for being on here. This has been a blast. Hey, I'm glad to have glad to be here, Casey. Appreciate it a ton, man. Absolutely. And for those listening, if you learned something, and I freaking know you did because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back, then share this episode with someone else. That's how you're a thought leader. One person, two people, 98, 3,004, whatever the number. Just get this information in other people's hands about planning their content so that they don't fall in that trap of the 90% of content that goes unused. And hey, maybe trim up some of that content this year. That's a good place in, to uh, to ring out the end of the year is just by trimming that tree, that, that Christmas tree of content. And uh, man, this has been a, a fantastic time. So for all those listening, hey, we will catch you all next time. This has been another episode of the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll see you.